You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this morning if you are here in the U.S. And good evening to everyone in Sri Lanka and the region. My name is Thamana Salakuddin, Director for South Asia Programs at the United States Institute for Peace. USIP is a national, nonpartisan, independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. Today, I'm honored to welcome a distinguished panel of experts to discuss the ongoing political and economic crisis in Sri Lanka. Often when we talk about South Asia, Sri Lanka doesn't get too much attention in Washington. But recently, the remarkable citizen-led protests that started this spring have ultimately ousted former President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, along with the dire economic and humanitarian realities that Sri Lankans are facing, has truly caught the world's attention. So today, we really want to dig deep and talk about what is the future for Sri Lanka and what are the lessons that the world and similarly situated countries should be taking from the current crisis. I'm excited to explore these questions today uh, with a great panel. My panel includes Bhavani Fonseca, who is a senior researcher and attorney at law with the Center for Policy Alternatives. Her research focus is on national and international advocacy and public interest litigation. Um, she has long worked on transitional justice in Sri Lanka. We're also joined by Ambassador Prasad Karyawasam, who's a career diplomat for Sri Lanka and has served in the Foreign Service since 1981. Uh, he's had very uh, an illustrious career, including having served as Sri Lanka's Foreign Secretary, but also been ambassador to the United States twice, uh, ambassador to the UN, uh, both in New York and Geneva, and High Commissioner to India. Next, we'll have Miss um, Ambika Satgunathan, who was from 2015 to 2020, the commissioner for human rights, uh, for the Human Rights Commission of Sri Lanka, where she conceptualized and led the first ever national study of prisons. She has served as an open society fellow, and she's currently um, researching the effect of drug policies on prison overcrowding. Her research, advocacy, and activism have focused on transitional justice, custodial violence, penal policy, prison reform, uh, gender, and Tamil nationalism. And last but certainly not least, we'll have Akhil Berry, who is a director, who's the director of South Asia Initiatives at the Asia Society Policy Institute, where his research focuses on the U.S.-India relationship and more broadly on developments across South Asia. And he'll be uh, discussing some of the details of the political and economic developments uh, in Sri Lanka. With that, I uh, ask that everyone in the audience, I'm sure you all have a lot of questions. This is a very emotional topic for many. I welcome you to join the conversation on our website. Feel free to put in the questions in chat. I'll start off with a discussion with the panelists and later on in the program, we will take your questions uh, to the panelists. I'd like to open with Bhavani and welcome you to tell us how did we get here, right? So most people in Washington only started paying attention to this this last spring in March and April as, as the protests 
took off. We heard about the economic uh, crisis in Sri Lanka, but you've written back in 2019, in 2020, uh, with the presidential election and then with the parliamentary elections, a lot of the surrounding political complications and crises that led to this moment. Um, and if you may, if you can walk us through, you know, the Rajapaksa's consolidated power, not overnight. This has been a slow uh, burning crisis. And actually the economic crisis really last year uh, got very, very bad for Sri Lanka. And so I, I want to turn to you to here, what is the current, but also how did we get here in terms of the political dynamics um, and, and the status of the political crisis? Thank you, Tamana, and thank you to USIP for hosting this very timely event. Um, just to say we've had some very busy and dynamic uh, months and weeks in Sri Lanka, those based here will know that it's been a few sleepless weeks for many of us in terms of what's happened and also just the uncertainty. But just to start off, let's just be very clear. We have a president who was elected by parliament last week, and that was quite an unprecedented move. This is the first time parliament has elect elected because another president was uh, didn't have to face an election. So we have a new president in office, Ranil Vikramasinghe, and some of the names that I mentioned, and I'm sure the other panelists also mentioned, are not new to the political landscape in Sri Lanka. If you look at Ranil Vikramasinghe's trajectory, he's been a prime minister several times. He's been in active politics for four decades. The others who we will be talking about, very specifically the Rajapaksas, also is a family dynasty and have been around for decades. So these are all people who've been around for quite some time in the political arena in Sri Lanka. And that also speaks to the governance model. It's very much individual driven governance. And that's something we hopefully can speak to in terms of lessons learned. But so we had a president elect and some very tumultuous times in terms of what led to that election, but also what has subsequently followed. Now, what happened just before also needs to be mentioned. The the exit of Gotabe Rajpaksa, the very powerful executive president who was elected in 2019. And I'm quickly going through this because we just don't have a lot of time to go deep into it. But just to mention that, again, very unprecedented developments in terms of uh, a president who was very popular in 2019. He got a significant margin in terms of the elections. And his party also got a majority of seats in 2020, um, had a spectacular collapse in 20, uh, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, when the citizen-led protests led to mass resignations of the cabinet, the then cabinet in April, and then the subsequent resignation of Mahinda Rajapaksa in May, 2000, uh, May this year. And then the subsequent fleeing of the president, Gotabe Rajapaksa, a few weeks ago. And then his subsequent resignation from out of Sri Lanka. All this is very critical to understand where we are at the moment. Um, and hopefully we can go into it a bit. But your question about how did we get here? So to do that, I think it's very important to understand in 2005, when Mahinda Rajapaksa was elected president, 
Um, and these names, I said, are not new, and I'll be repeating some of these names quite constantly. Uh, he, when he became president and commenced that mod, the presidential, his presidential term, which also saw the defeat of the LTT, we can talk about that also. But since then, there was this authoritarian governance model that the Rajapaksa has introduced. Now, that was there even under previous governments, but he, he, the power of the executive presidency was consolidated under the Rajapaksas, under Mahindra Rajapaksa and subsequently under Gotabe Rajapaksa. They did this through constitutional amendments. And I mean, these are constitutional amendments. Some of us have challenging court and critique. But at that time, what was also interesting is in 2010 and 2020, when both the 18th and the 20th amendments were passed, the narrative was we needed a strong ruler, we needed a savior, and that all the power should be with the executive presidency. And that's one of the root problems of Sri Lanka in terms of governance crisis, is we have an extremely powerful executive presidency. Now, we have an opportunity for reforms now, and we can talk about it a bit more later on. But one of the key things we need to look at is structural reforms, including abolishing the executive presidency. So one of the major problems is having such a powerful office, which is now linked to the economic crisis. And I'm sure Akil will speak to the economics here, but from the tax cuts in 2019 to the fertilizer ban, all of this came about because of this very powerful office with very limited checks and balances. So that's one of the key problems in terms of governance that we are confronted with, this all-powerful executive who basically did so much damage that we are in a bankrupt crisis uh, situation in Sri Lanka. There are also other issues such as militarization, ethno-nationalism. We can go into those a bit later, but I would say that's the crux of it. And at the present moment, just to bring us back to where we are, we have a new government, we have a new president, we have a new cabinet, we have a new prime minister. But one of the challenges the president will confront is he's reliant on the Rajapaksa's political party, the SLPP. So we come back to this name of the Rajapaksas. There's no escaping the Rajapaksas in Sri Lankan politics as it stands now. But just to remember, this moment is quite unique. And this moment also needs to be used in terms of what reforms can be brought about. So I'll end here in terms of opening remarks, and I'm happy to go further later on. Thanks, Bhavani. I mean, you've uh, identified a lot of issues and we'll definitely come back to you. Ambassador Kariyawasam, I, I want to turn to you. Um, you have been a part of the government as a, as a senior bureaucrat, uh, as a diplomat representing your country at, at very important times, including at the end um, of the civil war, of almost 30 years of civil war, you represented the country in Geneva. Uh, you've been in the U.S., you've been in India. Um, and I want to ask you, uh, you know, in all of these important posts, how much this authoritarianism, this individual governance that Bhavani talks about, 
how did it shape what you did and how you functioned as a as a government as as a diplomat but also how do you think the institutions the civil service bureaucracy how are they part of the crisis and how could they um, help bring about reforms i mean i think a lot of people in the audience would be curious as to why we included you here but i think we want to get an insider view you know usually bureaucrats are the ones who can keep things on track in many countries. So I'd like to get your um, a view from the inside of the crisis um, and how all of these movements over time have led us here. Ambassador, you're muted still. Uh, thank you, Tamana. Can you hear me? Um, and I uh, also thanks to the to the USIPS for having this. Of course, I'm a retired uh, public servant, so I'm perhaps free to uh, express my view as I wish. Um, yes, Sri Lanka is in its biggest crisis since independence, both economic and political. And how did we get here is a complicated question. But let me, I think, kind of recap a bit uh, with regard to our post-early independence days, uh, put things in context. Um, it's well known that the, at the time of independence in 1948, Sri Lanka was second only to Japan and in most in most socioeconomic indicators in Asia. We were hailed as the oldest democracy, and Sri Lanka's location on sea lanes between state of Hormuz and state of Malacca made the, the country, when right local conditions exist, a natural strategic hub in the Orient since ancient times. But things... Uh, did not develop the way perhaps uh, Sri Lanka should have from there onwards. It was a combination of factors over a long period of time, which uh, as a public servant, I had the vantage view, of course, how things uh, worked well and did not work well. Um, so let me uh, give some highlights with regard to where perhaps things did not uh, go well for Sri Lanka. Though democracy runs in veins of Sri Lankans, feudal tra traditions in society and involvement of religious interest in politics had a corrupting influence on democratic practice. And perhaps as a result, Sri Lankan democracy and its allied value system has not evolved and adjusted to 21st century practice of truly democratic nations. And very importantly, populist politics an entitlement culture of the people feeding each other made democratic practice somewhat transactional. These practices contributed to macroeconomic imbalances over a long period of time where, where officials were unable to do much because the politicians were more focusing on populist politics. So uh, some of us were, were perhaps uh, left uh, just standing. And then we had a long drawn out civil war insurrection in the South, and very importantly, gradual and deliberate weakening of institutions for various reasons, leading towards degeneration of the meritocracy in public service cadres. And more recently, misguided policy decisions affecting sustainable growth in the country after becoming a middle-income country, when access to constituent refinancing and large-scale flows were no more. And lack of good governance, accountability, profligacy in government spending, divisions in law and order, 
all those things contributed to uh, difficulties Sri Lanka facing today. And this is something I have experienced. And on several critical locations, leaders mismanaged external relations with key nations and other key entities. And all these factors also militated against attracting quality investments that could have boosted real growth in economy and led to job growth, job creation. Now, I think I'll take a little more time to put say certain things which I experienced. But the ongoing agitation is not the first time public clamored for a change and even voted for a change. In recent times, too, there was a brief period of hope for the country after the election of good governance government in 2015. And that's the time I was in US and they later became foreign secretary. So I had a vantage view of that, that process. Um, although the good governance government fell apart in October 2018 constitutional coup, the intention of that government was to have a non-party coalition government backed by all sections of society to take Sri Lanka on a different trajectory to strengthen democracy, human rights, rule of law, to introduce new constitution through an inclusive process, greater devolution of power, abolition of all powerful executive presidency, parliamentary oversight, greater engagement with the international community, and undertaking transitional justice processes. On the economic front, Sri Lanka entered into stabilization program with IMF, and the government moved away from previous government's confrontational approach to human rights by taking charge of addressing and investigating allegations of human rights violations through local truth-seeking justice and reparation mechanisms. The measures were initiated even to table a bill in parliament to establish the independence of central bank. Tax reforms were introduced, which included increasing component of direct taxes. Government adopted more outward-looking, multi-aligned foreign policy, establishing partnership with all key countries and with the U.S. The 2015 government, having established partnership dialogue with U.S., which I was directly involved, worked on securing U.S. dollars 480 million MCC compact grant assistance for, among other measures, for upgrading key road network and traffic management system and modern land management system. But all these processes of 2015 government were discontinued by the 2019 government, which came with a very big popular mandate. The policies followed by 2019 government alienated Sri Lanka's traditional democratic partners, which are incidentally some of Sri Lanka's biggest trading partners and donor nations, such as US, EU, and even longtime partner Japan. And policy and conduct framework that ailed the country in a historical sense, as I mentioned before, once again returned and became mainstream and business as usual, so to say. In addition, since November 19, several new unwise decisions, economic mismanagement, adamant refusal to listen to real experts became order of the day. Tax cuts were introduced, Reserves were used to pay debt installments for and for imports. And COVID-19 and Ukraine war aggravated the situation, which, of course, uh, is beyond the control of Sri Lanka government. But it's affected tourism, fuel, food, and everything. And government was urged to approach the IMF, which it refused to do until very late. 
So that's where we are. Uh, that's where we are. I'll stop at that and maybe we can, I can clarify matters further. Yeah. As, no, thank you very much. And it's interesting you talk about the weakening of institutions. I do want to come back and ask you a little bit about the allegations of corruption and cronyism. Um, and how those have also played out. But and now I want to move to Ambika and talk about, I mean, this Friday's crackdown, uh, even with the new prime minister, I mean, he is playing from the same playbook, right, of cracking down, using states of emergency, using the military um, and police forces to crack down on protesters. Um, and basically, yes, they got rid of Gota, but the the problems still remain and so i want to i want to hear from you about you know what uh, what is the future of the protest movement if you can tell us a little bit about you know what is being portrayed you know largely nonviolent leaderless protest how will this what are the demands what is the future how do you see the people actually voicing uh, their demands when you see you know the call of the day from uh, the new prime minister raniel wickerasinga is you got what you wanted, now go home, let us take care of business, right? So how do we move forward from here? We're seeing nations around the world, the U.S. included, calling for, you know, speaking out against this crackdown on protesters. So I'm very interested in your thoughts on this. Thank you, Tamanna, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this. Um, I think the... uh... The protest started off, as you rightly said, it was only about Gotha go home. So I think the protest started mainly due to the economic crisis and not particularly the historical political issues or the systemic structural issues. And that is why it also remained with Gotha go home. And for many people, they did not know about or understand about the executive presidency or about the uh, feudal uh, patronage driven political culture or the ethnic conflict or how the executive presidency is linked to all these factors. And which is why also, I mean, uh, many of the middle classes also participated. It was a very uh, diverse group in a sense. But the way I see it is the protests in Colombo in uh, the South or particularly at GGG, Gota Gogama, at Golface in Colombo. I see that, I call it kind of a flagship protest, right? Because there have also been protests that have been ongoing against this government, and particularly the Rajapaksas. For instance, I'd always say this in the North and the East. The families have disappeared for more than 2,000 days, but they do not get visibility, they do not get traction, and also as far as the Rajapaksas are concerned, oh, those are just the Tamils, so really, who cares, right? Whereas the people here in the South, and they were openly voicing it, particularly on social media, and even mainstream media when interviewed, people who actually said that they voted for them, and they are disappointed. So I think that really made a difference because it was their constituency. And we saw... uh, um, a drop in the protest, particularly after the the 9th May attack, right? And also uh, the the violence that took place afterwards, because then you saw the middle classes getting confused. There was also a narrative that was being uh, woven even from that point of the protest and the protesters being fascists or aligned with fascists and being violent, etc., particularly on social media, we saw that. And of course, the appointment of Ranil Vikramasinghe as prime minister meant that there were various groups 
who felt, okay, we got to give him a chance. We trust him, gentleman politician, quote unquote, things like that. Uh, so that I think of course uh, happened. And then of course, when he was, they, I think people were shocked. They did not realize the kind of political machinations that can happen and manipulations. And what you have now is pretty much a proxy. I mean, it's not even proxy. You just remove Gota and you have Ranil Vikramasinghe uh, as president. The cabinet is the same. The Rajapaksa yield a lot of power as we saw uh, in even how the president was chosen. The structures, the, the dysfunctional structures remain and hence it seems a, quite an uphill battle because there are also our people who once again predictably say well we need to give Ranil a chance because as far as they're concerned he can fix the economy, who cares about anything else and therein lies the problem that for a majority of the people, as long as the economics is taken care of, who cares about the rest? And we have seen uh, that the fact that we, this, these protests were also protests uh, portrayed as, you know, uh, something that brought everyone together, whatnot. And you saw a little bit of that in Colombo, but that once again, that I think is overstated as we have seen um, over the, the several weeks. Uh, therefore, it will be an uphill battle because uh, Mr. Ronald Vikramasinghe does not uh, seem like he wants to go for elections or step down and they all want to sit out their full term. Uh, and if the crackdown is something where Mr. Ronald Vikramasinghe was showing his power, was um, making his you know, in a sense, also showing to the military and gaining some sort of credibility with the military, which he perhaps previously did not have. And of course, as successive executive presidents have done, the default refuge of the authoritarian, as I call it, is, of course, the state of emergency, which they use to abuse human rights and crack down on dissent. So that is where we are right now. Thank you, Ambika. I mean, you've raised a lot of really important questions that I want to come back to and definitely want to talk about the ethno-nationalism that is sort of the, the underlying cause of, and root of a lot of these things. Uh, but before we get there, Akhil, I want to ta uh, talk to you about the economics, right? This is a political crisis that is really undergirded by the collapse of the economy. And even the new prime minister, Raniel Vikramasinghe, you know, he said the economy has collapsed, right? And everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Um, a lot of nations around the world who are similarly placed in Asia, in, uh, you know, in Africa are looking at this. Uh, a lot of years of borrowing and, uh, you know, the multiple external exogenous blows of uh, the war in Ukraine, of COVID-19, of a lot of different things have led Sri Lanka to this. But can you help explain for the audience uh, where we are in terms of the economy right now and what is the path forward? Absolutely. Um, and thank you, Tamana and USIP, for having me on today to speak. Um, and as kind of Bhavani and um, Prasad also said, I mean, this, this economic collapse has been long in the making. So Sri Lanka has run what is known as the twin deficit. It has both a current account deficit and a fiscal deficit, where it imports more than it exports and also spends more than it brings in in taxation revenue. Um, so this has kind of been a problem for quite some time and exacerbated by the fact that you've had successive governments implement pr protectionist policies and refusing to kind of integrate Sri Lanka into the global supply chain. So exports, for example, have gone from being about 40% of GDP in 2000 to 20% now. So that's a significant loss of export earnings. Then, of course, you've had um, tourist uh, collapse in tourism. So 
while the, the government wanted tourism to be about $5 billion worth of foreign exchange for the country, you had the 2018 constitutional crisis, which uh, caused the EU to put travel warning on Sri Lanka and stop basically um, caution uh, EU travel operators from sending um, tourist groups over to Sri Lanka. Then you had the 2019 Easter bombings. Then, of course, you had the COVID-19 pandemic, which caused, which shut down tourism from April until November. Um, and even then, when they tried, when the government tried to restart with a pilot program to attract Russian and Ukrainian tourists, that that those dreams were short-lived once the once Russia's invasion of Ukraine happened. So you've had a situation where there've been a number of external shocks, but also bad policy decisions. I mean, so not only did you have the twin deficit problem, but you also have the debt problem, where you've had successive governments seek international financing and bilateral financing to finance infrastructure. Now, and I'm happy to go into this a little bit later about the kind of Chinese debt issue, but one of the challenges is that successive governments have also taken out massive amounts of loans to fund vanity projects, which were not um, commercially viable. So Humban Tota is a great example of that, um, where it, the, it was offered to India, it was offered to other countries, but they declined saying that it was not commercially viable until the Chinese stepped in and financed it. So you've had kind of a mix of bad policy issues leading up to 2020. And then in 2020, of course, you've had a, 2020 and beyond, you've had, uh, sorry, 2019 and beyond, you've had a series of bad policies. So as um, Bhavani and Prasad mentioned, the 2019 tax cuts, um, that the IMF estimates cost Sri Lanka about two and a half percent of lost, re lost revenue to GDP. So um, over the past 20 years, Sri Lanka's tax to GDP ratio has gone from being about 20% of the economy to under 10%. And that's not sustainable for an import heavy economy. And this, these numbers came out from the ADB. So you've had, you had the 2019 tax cut combined with an increase in public sector hiring, which forced the central bank to kind of print more money, which then was spent on even more, which used the foreign exchange to pay for even more imports, given that Sri Lanka is an import-heavy economy. Then, of course, you had this ill-timed, ill-advised ban on fertilizers. Um, typically speaking, to transition a country, to transition farmers from non-organic to organic farming, it takes about three years at the very minimum. Um, five years is preferred. To do this overnight was to just save some foreign exchange was a very ill-fated policy, and that helped lead to kind of the, sh the food shortage that you're seeing right now, as that really did hurt um, kind of the agriculture sector, which was one of Sri Lanka's main exports, including tea, rice, etc. So you've had this perfect storm of situation happening, and in 2020. Um, the IMF was help was supporting a wide variety of countries with um, this rapid finance instrument in order to support the economies due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But Sri Lanka did not qualify because even at that point, the debt was considered to be unsustainable. Um, it's been widely known, and a lot of a, a number of authors have written about this. That at that time, Sri Lanka should have approached the, uh, its creditors about uh, restructuring the loan, saying, "Like, look, this is a challenging situation. We can't afford to make the debt payments, but work with us, and we will make sure that we kind of work towards a more uh, fiscally solvent position." But they chose not to do that, and instead of negotiating with the IMF, 
sought um, Sri Lanka sought to gain to get currency swaps from India, from Bangladesh, from China. The, chi- the currency swap from China was only to be used to pay for imports from China. But yet the government, um, especially the central bank governor, was proclaiming that this was a massive boost in foreign exchange reserves, which it wasn't. And the central bank also played a role in trying to defend the rupee, pegging it to the U.S. dollar. But ultimately, kind of the capital flight made sure that the central bank couldn't kind of defend the currency anymore, and that caused the peg to break, and that led to the slide in the currency that started in March. And I mean, so now you basically see um, Sri Lanka as the standard textbook case of an emerging market crisis, import-dependent, a trade deficit, pegged exchange rate, high foreign currency borrowing, capital flight, balance of payments crisis, and a sovereign default. And let's not forget that there are still more loans in the pipeline that Sri Lanka has yet to default on. So this, the, it's kind of a cascading effect of default unless the fiscal house gets it in order. And I just want to bring up one thing um, related to what Ambika was saying, um, and this is something that kind of is very much concerns me, is that by using the military to crack down on protesters, Sri Lanka, there, there are, there, there's a re- resolution coming up at the UNHRC later this year, um, and also potentially the loss of GSP plus revenue status for Sri Lanka by the EU. So GSP plus applies to the textile industry. That's one of Sri Lanka's main exports. The EU as a trading bloc is sec- Sri Lanka's second largest trading partner. If it were to lose um, trade benefits for the textile sector to the EU because of these human rights violations, that could very much be the death knell for the Sri Lankan economy. So now, right where we are right now, is it really depends on how the negotiations with the IMF go, because that can help unlock other financing to help kind of Sri Lanka navigate this crisis. And so, I mean, Akhil, I want to follow up right there with you on on the IMF program, right? Everybody is looking to see if the IMF program will go forward. And we're hearing that the unrest, the crackdown on protesters, if there's continued political instability, will the IMF be able to engage with this, uh, with the new government? Um, You know, it's the same parliament, but new faces at the top. Will they actually be able to push through a program? I think the IMF... We've seen some positive signals from the IMF. So Kristalina Georgieva, the managing director of the IMF, did say that like once the presidential election is resolved, then she expects negotiations to continue very quickly. Now, the question is, is will will there be any wit, political will to implement the painful reforms that are needed? Um, these are the same cast of characters in parliament that were in the previous government. So... I, I, for one, am skeptical if there is kind of the political will. I think the IMF will give a little bit more leeway here. But I, I think there are certain areas where Sri Lanka, what Sri Lanka can do to, to signal that it is committed to kind of fiscal consolidation. So there are rumors about that a new budget is going to be presented in August. I would highly, I would believe that the IMF would have had eyes on it before it's presented to Parliament. If not, then that's a very fatal mistake. Um, public expenditure is going to increase, but I think what the IMF will look for is a reversal of the 2019 tax cuts. And I personally would also argue that Sri Lanka could use this as an opportunity to cut defense spending to show that it is serious about getting on a path to fiscal solvency and use some, maybe use some of that money on social programs, which are much, are much more needed to improve the, li- the current life of the average Sri Lankan. Thank you for that, Akhil. I want to transition to the talk about the political side of that, Bhavani, right? The current uh, 
prime minister. He's arguing that you need stability. And his supporters say, look, we're here. We're going to stabilize the economy. But as I said, it's the same people. Uh, it's the SLPP supporting Ranil now. So what, what do you see as the legal and constitutional way? When do you get fresh elections? Is there a new popular mandate for the government? Or do you actually see this term, you know, they complete the next two years uh, with this, uh, with the new president. And then what is the scope for actual constitutional reform, right? You talked about the executive presidency and constitutional amendments. I mean, what is the path? How do you see that happening? And beyond that, I mean, even the institutions that have been weakened and the military that has been brought in in a lot of places, is there a legal and constitutional way to resolve many of these structural problems um, that have caused the current crisis? Uh, thanks, Damana. Um, you're laughing because you're not. You're pessimistic about this. <laughs> no, I'm laughing because you're expecting me to do this in a few minutes. I mean, we can have a separate panel on these questions. Uh, but I mean, let's let's go into some of these key issues. The demand has been for a system change by the people. I mean that. And, and I, I think we need to take a moment to recognize what's happened in the last few months. I mean, we can talk abstractly about reforms and the politics, but on the ground, there was this remarkable energy. I mean, building on the years and decades of protests, but what happened in Sri Lanka in the last few months is quite remarkable. Um, in that a very powerful and popular government was thrown out. Um, and they, there is a change in terms of a new president. Of course, there are problems with that. But last, if you had asked me, would this be even a possibility? I would have said no, because that's how entrenched the Rajapaksas were. They continue to have a role, but they were so visibly powerful. Now, the system change people wanted includes a whole host of reforms. And I'm not sure how much can be done this year or next year. I mean, we are talking about long-term reforms. But one key demand is the abolishing of the executive presidency. And there is clear support. I mean, this is not just the protesters. Among the public, there is this after several decades of uh, many of us calling for the abolishing of the executive presidency. Finally, people realize the crisis is directly linked to this office and the abuse of power of one individual. So there is finally this realization that uh, constitutional reforms are needed, structural reforms are needed. One is abolishing the executive. The other is addressing the rampant corruption. And this is also a key thing that would be required if IMF and others, international actors, are to support Sri Lanka. Because with corruption at the scale we are facing in Sri Lanka, no one is going to be keen to give money because you don't know where that money would go into. So, you know, abolishing the executive presidency, bringing in checks and balances, addressing the rule of law, addressing corruption, Akhil's point about budget reallocation. These are things we've been raising with the IMF and others because these are key issues if we are to take Sri Lanka forward. Now, would any of this happen? I don't know. But one of the things we've been pushing for is constitutional amendments. There are two bills in parliament. One 
Uh, well, one bill in Parliament, one by a private member's bill, which is actually providing for the abolition of the executive presidency. The other one is a government bill, which is cabinet approved, but doesn't go as far as abolishing the executive presidency. It really uh, diminishes certain powers, strengthens certain aspects in terms of checks, but doesn't go far enough. And a critique we've made is that at this moment, when we are facing all these, uh, the protests and the public demand and the calls for change, we need to really think of major changes, not incremental changes. Um, but the other one about elections, again, there is a clear demand that, you know, there's very little trust in the elected representatives now, and that's across the board. I mean, all the politicians have lost the confidence of the people. Maybe the degrees are different in terms of there may be some who are a bit more popular than the others, but people have very little confidence in the elected representatives. There's a clear demand that there has to be elections a fresh mandate. But the politics is such that to get to elections, either parliament passes a resolution with two-thirds supporting, members of parliament supporting, or the president can dissolve, but only after two and a half years of the parliament. Now, with the parliament that's controlled majority by this LPP, we are unlikely to see them passing a resolution. So the opposition can call all they want for a new elections. We are unlikely to get through the parliament. Will Ranil Vikramasinghe as now president get pass a resolution after the two and a half years? I doubt it very much because he is in a very weak position. He's reliant on this LPP. He's party only has one seat in parliament, that's the politics. So whatever reforms, legislative agenda he has in, uh, he's planning to push through, he will have to make deals with different political parties. That's the nature of politics at this present moment. So we're looking at, unfortunately, a continuation of what is at play at the moment, very worrying because people are going to get more angry. The the humanitarian crisis is going to exacerbate. Economic crisis doesn't look like it's going to be resolved anytime soon. So if we say we are in hard times now, we are going in for harder times and we are going to have a population getting even more angry. So volatility is very much going to be the case and the fear is there's going to be new triggers for violence. But that's a very, yeah, that is very troubling indeed. I mean, it seems the politics is all about a crisis of legitimacy. Um, and while the SLPP holds the majority of seats, there's very little space for that reform. I, I want to turn to Ambika, the, the elephant in the room, and many of the questioners online are asking about, you know, the way the SLPP and really the Rajapaksas came to power is through this idea of Sinhalese Buddhist nationalism, ethno-nationalism. And with the SLPP still in power, many uh, would argue that Yes, minorities will continue to protest, be upset about how the war ended, about disappearances, about human rights violations. And some critics say that, yeah, the protesters largely represent in Colombo sort of a Colombo elite and that the rural, southern, Sinhalese heartland still supports uh, SLPP, still supports 
you know, what the Rajapaksas represented. And so is there any hope for human rights, for reconciliation in the country? I mean, I want to get your thoughts on that, on the ethno-nationalism, the, the increasing um, militarism of the past government, and I would say the continuing policies, but also what is the scope for any reconciliation if, you know, if they can just pull the protesters back and appease sort of the economics, is there any scope for real reform and change? Um, well, Sri Lanka has always been uh, a Sinhala Buddhist nationalist state, and that has been the problem. And successive presidents have actually used this as their platform. And I think the difference, though, was that for many, it was probably uh, politics. It was a strategic thing to do. Whereas for Gotabe Rajapaksa, he is what I call a true believer. He actually believed in it, which is what, in a sense, made him slightly dangerous. And for him, the two pillars of his ideology was Sinhala Buddhist nationalism and it was militarization because what we saw in Sri Lanka is the militarization increased post-war in 2009, uh, much more than it was ever before because you saw military getting involved in all aspects, all sorts of aspects of civilian life and public institutions. Um, in that context, I think what we see is the same government. We also see Mr. Ranil Vikramasinghe because, you know, as the president, uh, his term is five years, but they can call elections in four, which means November 2023, he can. But what he has clearly shown is that he has no intention. And with this parliament, I do not think you can... Uh, get anything in terms of truth, accountability, um, uh, reparations, etc. And what is very worrying is also that Mr. Ali Sabri has been made foreign minister. Uh, he is, uh, and in the past, he's shown himself to be able to uh, win the trust and confidence of the international community. We have the UN Human Rights Council sessions coming in September. So the concern is that he will manage to somehow um, or he, they will attempt to um, not have a rollover, to ensure that there is uh, no other continuing resolution, etc. Therefore, in this context, I think for the, the Tamil community, the Muslim community, and particularly for the Tamil community in terms of a political solution to the ethnic conflict, as well as accountability, truth reparations for the violations that took place during the armed conflict, the prospect seems very slim. And I think the most important point I want to make here is the erroneous assumption that Ranil Vikramasinghe wants to but is hampered. I don't think that is correct. And he has proven that again and again, uh, particularly you know, in the last several weeks. So I think we should not give politicians the benefit of the doubt. Sri Lanka cannot afford that. We have done that repeatedly, which is why we are in this. As citizens, what we must do is hold them to account rather than giving them the benefit of the doubt and ask them to prove their bona fides. Um, so yeah, I little hope, but uh, we struggle on. No, thanks for that, Ambika. I want to turn to Prasad and, and talk about corruption that's been endemic to the Sri Lankan political system. I mean, this has been one of the things that protesters and many critics of the system have talked about, the corruption and cronyism uh, that really uh, plague the uh, political system. And the diplomatic corps is no exemption. I mean, we recently saw in the U.S. a former ambassador to the U.S., uh, uh, you know, uh, convicted for corruption. And so, I mean, as an insider, what are the key steps to clear 
cleaning up this Sri Lankan political system and stopping this immune impunity for economic crimes? The most important thing in Sri Lanka that is missing is that accountability of public officials, which includes not only politicians, but bureaucrats too. Uh, as I said, our institution have been weakening over a period of time, maybe since 1972 constitution that removed a lot of independence, nature of the public service, uh, so that the political authorities have a stronger leverage over how thing, how uh, implementation takes place of government policy, because in a good democracy, political leaders make policy and then there's a bureaucracy that is quite independent who implement those policies in a in a very accountable manner they are account they should be accountable for every cent that they spent it was there in sri lanka in early days of independence but over a period of time i think it's the it, it's it's a combination of facts uh, populist policies and perhaps entitlement uh, culture in the, in the country all led to this weakening of institutions so that the political authorities can make can make democracy more transactional. Uh, so moment democracy becomes transactional, you need to have means to implement that. And then the best, then, then the strong bureaucracy that will work on certain principles becomes a problem. So arising out of that, not only the politicians, but sometimes bureaucracy too became corrupt because they worked hand in hand and recruitment to the public service should have been always on perfect merit, but it, that also perhaps over a period of time weakened. So all this played played a part, and and yes, corruption became corruption is there in every country, but 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 the fact remains there's there's a limit to it, and there should be a means of addressing accountability. Accountability not in terms of financial accountability, but also the conduct, and and uh, that conduct include even rights. The human rights violations in Sri Lanka are sometimes are taken for granted. You know, you cannot do that. Uh, uh, and 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 when there is an effort to try and handle that, it's 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 being given a new uh, new interpretation, as if you know you become a traitor for for addressing human rights. That that that, that should not be the case. So so it's a uh, it's most important thing is the checks and balances and accountability and transparency not being there in the public service and then of course political authorities that led to the, the led to the situation and uh, sri lanka therefore i mean there are several other democracies these things are rampant but sri lanka in early days of independence was a model democracy many countries hail sri lanka as the example and singapore want to follow sri lanka until they realize that Sri Lanka is going going away from its main main uh, main capacities, so uh, so uh, so that's where I, where I have to stop. So that's where I, the problem is that uh, transparency, accountability, lacks in um, uh, is not being treated as important assets in the public service. Thank you very much for that. Akhil, I want to turn to you. Um, you know, sitting in Washington, the word we hear is China every day. Uh, you know, just last week, CIA Director Burns said that part of the cause of the crisis was Sri Lanka's dumb bets on China. And the Rajapaksa family was well known for relying on China to support many of its investment goals. I mean, is this an inflection point for uh, Sri Lanka and how uh, they deal with China. And, and can you go into a little bit? I mean, I think it's very easy to say that the 
the cause of the economic crisis is China. I think that is one factor, but it's more complicated than that. So what is, you know, for all of the countries in Asia, a lot of them are looking at this crisis and thinking about their own loans to China and BRI projects. You know, what do you see as the message they're taking away uh, from, uh, from this current crisis in Sri Lanka? And how does it change Sri Lanka's relationship with China? Absolutely. Um, so I, I was lucky enough to be in the audience for um, Director Burns' speech. Um, and actually, there, there was a speech the next day by the head of MI6, which I think captured the issue much, much better. Because um, as, you, as you mentioned, there is this, this constant talk in D.C. about Sri Lanka being caught in the Chinese debt trap. But what the head of MI6 said um, was what China did was it focused on the, the capture of Sri Lankan political elites. And I think that's much more important when you're talking about the debt situation. As I was saying about Hambantota before, that was it was more that while yes, I mean China does account for a lot for a significant amount of Sri Lanka's loans. Um, it's by official estimates, it's about 10% of Sri Lanka's total loans. There's been a report by a think tank in Sri Lanka, which puts that number at closer to 20% when including the loans that state-owned enterprises have taken on. Um, whereas, for example, international sovereign bonds are about 37 to 39% of Sri Lanka's total debt um, makeup. But I think where where we what I see with China though is that China has not kind of been willing to help out Sri Lanka in this crisis. Um, and I think going back to what Prasad was saying about alienating key partners, um, Sri Lanka canceled the Eastern Container Terminal Project, which angered India and Japan. It canceled the Light Rail Terminal Project, which was another Japanese-funded project. Um, it pushed through this Colombo Port City bill, which benefited the Chinese, and at the same time was also willing to be a part of Chinese propaganda. So I remember there was a $1 billion loan being negotiated between China and, Japan and Sri Lanka. Um, but then when China was looking to improve its image after the initial COVID-19 outbreak, that loan was repurposed, re repackaged as a COVID-19 loan uh, for uh, China to say, look, we're doing what we can to help out Sri Lanka and the people of Sri Lanka for the COVID-19 pandemic. But now where, what Sri Lanka needs the most is debt restructuring. It needs it, and India has also has championed this cause of the IMF, saying that look, every country, every creditor needs to take a haircut, China included. But the relief that China has provided Sri Lanka, it's it's it pales in comparison to what India has done. It's humanitarian assistance, not debt relief. And I think as we see around the world, like Laos, Pakistan, Zambia, Kenya, one of the issues is is that China is unwilling to to provide a restructuring for any of these countries. And I think that the types of loans that Sri Lanka has taken, um, China was a higher, could have been a higher interest rate. There was also not a lot of public disclosure about the types of contracts that were signed on Hambantota, on the Chinese, on borrowing more and more money from China. So I think with, with other countries, what is likely to be seen is a push for citizens to, to encourage more transparency from the governments in the deal in, in taking more money from China, but also more of a broad recognition that if you get caught in a debt crisis, China is not going to come to your help. It's not going to be, it will offer refinancing, but it won't offer a restructuring of the loans. 
Thanks for that, Akil. I encourage the audience to continue to ask questions on our website. We're getting some great questions and I will bring those to the panelists. Prasad, I want to turn to you. In, in juxtaposition to China, India has been sort of at the forefront of providing immediate aid uh, since the start of the year. Obviously, it's not free aid. They, you know, some of its loans, some of its swaps, other things, they have provided fuel and some other things. But can you talk about, I mean, you served as ambassador in New Delhi. Can you talk about the evolution of the Sri Lanka and India relationship? where it stands now and what you see, you know, India is a very important player in the quad. And for the quad, uh, Sri Lanka right now is an important place to, to focus um, in the quad alliance. So how do you see the India and Sri Lanka relationship playing through and maybe helping uh, Sri Lanka get through the crisis? Uh, you're muted. So uh, yeah. go ahead. There you go. Uh, for Sri Lanka, India is the key country. As far as external relations are concerned, I think there's a bipartisan acceptance in Sri Lanka about that. And in India too, India also considers Sri Lanka, although we are quite small as compared to India and its population and geography-wise, an important country because of the situation of, 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 the, of the nation. We are, as we know, we are in the we are between state of Hormuz and state of Malacca. So on Indo-Pacific regional peace and security, Sri Lanka is an important nation. And we have played that role for a very long year, since the ancient times. So these facts are understood by both, both parties. And Sri Lanka also had learned lessons in terms of the downside of not having a good relationship with India. We have had our own experience. And India too had their, their own experience. So now there is a kind of bipartisan understanding on both sides of the Park Strait with regard to the importance of this relationship because if Sri Lanka, for instance, collapse in terms of economic and politics, it can affect India negatively. And same way for Sri Lankans now realizing increasingly a uh, prosperous India, a strong India is in our interest, not, not against our interest. There was a time when Sri Lankans thought like that, you know, India is strong and big brother trying to dominate. I think that thought is not going away because uh, India is, is, is providing assistance when Sri Lanka is in trouble. That's a new, new, uh, new thing in the... And, and of course, uh, nothing comes free, of course. Everything is mutual benefit. So that's how I think the relationship has evolved. Um, although always when you are neighbors, there is certain level of uh, work to be done in terms of understanding each other better, and that's ongoing. That's always there. And of course, uh, there was a time when Sri Lanka's relationship with Tamil Nadu was fraught due to ethnic uh, issues with regard to North, uh, Northern Sri Lanka, how, how the government treated Tamil population and all those atrocities. Now, Fortunately, in the recent past, things are mending, and uh, that's, uh, the understanding is developing between Sri Lanka and Tamil Nadu and Sri Lanka and India. How And there are limits to what Sri Lanka should do in terms of treatment of uh, its own population and, and how India will intercede. So there is a sense of understanding. And, uh, and in terms of Indo-Pacific uh, maritime security and naval cooperation, Sri Lanka, India is almost on the same page today. 
Now, for instance, Sri Lanka participated in the U.S. RAMPAC uh, um, uh, exercise. So only from our region, Sri Lanka and India participated. Um, so, uh, so, so there is a sense of uh, um, harmony at this point. And uh, I think bo both Sri Lanka and India is uh, seeing benefit of that. And it's very important that both countries need to take population with them. I think uh, at the level of leaders, there's a better understanding. And India has been very, very kind to Sri Lanka in the recent past to get, to get out of this trouble. Um, but mm -hmm. of course, India cannot keep this going. Sri Lanka will have to do its own own work. So that's how mm -hmm. I look at it. Right. Um, it, let me follow up with Ambika with a question from the audience. I mean, there's a question about minority rights for religious minorities in Sri Lanka. Uh, what's next in your mind? What are the tr current trends and what do these uh, rights groups that support religious minorities and ethnic minorities, what do they need to be looking out for? I mean, some of the picture you painted wasn't very hopeful, but what are the signs they should be looking out for? And, and obviously allies in the U.S. and others who um, should be paying attention. Well, the default strategy of the Rajapaksas and now what they call Ranil Rajapaksa uh, has always been when in trouble, uh, they engage in uh, hate speech and they engage in ethno or they ramp up the ethno-nationalist politics and hate mongering. And we have already seen this happening, particularly on social media. Like for instance, there is an issue related to uh, a contested religious space in the North in Muleti when there was a court order that was given relating to that. Uh, that has been uh, distorted and what is being circulated on social media is, is not even misinformation, it is disinformation and that is being done in a purposeful way. There are Buddhist monks who preach hate. There is one particular monk who is who used to be in the military. So he's like a militant monk in the sense. And he's probably better than Yanasarathera, who everyone might know, because he's younger, he seems suave, he speaks in a quiet, calm way, and therefore does not, you know, he does come with that connotation of being a thug, etc. And they are spreading hate speech. It is against Tamils, it's against Muslims and also Catholics and asking the, the Sinhalese auntie was ashamed that you have sent Gota away and his politics might have been problematic but uh, he was a Buddhist leader and by sending him home what you have done is you have undermined the Sinhala Buddhist uh, supremacy. So that is what we are seeing and of course even during the COVID crisis and thereafter even now during the, the economic crisis we have not seen any abatement in the north and the east of taking over particularly of private land uh, for uh, uh, acquisition and occupation, particularly acquisition by the military. The people there have managed to stop it through multiple means, also through protests. So that is still continuing because I think what has happened now is that that has in a way, particularly over the Rajapaksa uh, era, those 10 years in particular, and now it has become ingrained in the state structures themselves. So for instance, one institution that is very problematic because it's also quite racist and it enables the state in this uh, project is the Department of Archaeology and also the Department of Forestry. So it has become institutionalized. Therefore, I think the challenge going forward is that 
this is a long-term you know, struggle in terms of not only changing mindsets, not just laws and constitutions, but of also uh, these institutions, which have now, uh, it's systemic. So how do we tackle that in the long term is the, the challenge we have before us. Thanks for that, Ambika. Bhavani, I want to turn to you. I mean, some of the questions, what should the IMF, the US, India, Sri Lanka's other external partners be aware of when they're providing assistance? I mean, how can they ensure this assistance is used effectively to resolve the crisis and address people's needs? Uh, I mean, I think people want to help. They're not sure how to help. Um, and you talked about systemic corruption. You talked about infrastructure problems, uh, institutional problems. So how is it that the aid that comes in doesn't just further those institutional problems. Uh, Tamana, just I want to also add one point to the previous question. Please, I mean, we to talk about um, ethnic and religious minorities. I think we need to recognize under the Rajapaksas, the Muslim community have faced immense discrimination and marginalization, and that needs to be clearly said. I mean, under the last government, we saw discriminatory policies, forced cremation, um, and so much. I mean, it started with this, I mean, it started under the Mahinda Rajapaksa time period, and it really just kind of spread. And that really in the post-war set setting is just something we cannot ignore. Um, so while we talk about discrimination, inequalities, and violence, the Muslim community really has faced quite a bit um, of attack and, and structural violence in the last few years as well. But goes back to even the war with the LTT and the forced eviction in, in from the North. So these things we need to recognize. We cannot erase that part of history and the narrative. In terms of what we need to look at or the international community when engaging with this government. I mean, we've already addressed some of these structural issues in terms of corruption. You know, what are the checks that are going to be in place if internationals are to give international assistance? Uh, how do you ensure the assistance goes to the most vulnerable? I mean, when we talk about the hardest hit communities at the moment, one of the key things that is needed is getting them cash grants and giving them assistance. I mean, we're talking about people not having three meals a day. Some of the hardest hit are large in the urban poor areas in Sri Lanka. And we have certain assistance programs that dates back decades, some of it, and was used also during the pandemic, some of these assistance. But we also realize the corruption that's part of these assistance programs. So how do you ensure assistance goes to the people? If it's looking at humanitarian assistance, if you're talking about in terms of infrastructure, in, in terms of structural reforms, again, how do you ensure that it is focused, that uh, the bureaucracy doesn't get lost in the bureaucracy. So really ensuring conditions are put in place that benefits Sri Lanka and Sri Lankans, that it doesn't go to the politicians. It doesn't en enrich the politicians and the bureaucrats. And, and the point that Prasad raised earlier about, you know, this um, addressing accountability is critical. So those things really need to be looked at from the international community. 
But there is the other dimension. Now, we have the UN Human Rights Council session coming up in September. Uh, there is talk about a new resolution. It's going to be interesting to see how the next few weeks play out with the new foreign minister who is going to be on charm offensive. So internationals also, when talking to the Sri Lankan government about supporting Sri Lanka, they also raises human rights issues talks about uh, issues such as accountability, structural reforms, things that may not be you know, the, the most important to some donors. These are critical. In terms of the IMF and other things that we've been pushing for is issues such as rule of law, independence of the judiciary and institutions. There's a whole host of things that we've been talking for years. Um, so there's a whole set of things that can be raised. It depends on the donor. But end of the day, I think the key issue is what benefits Sri Lanka and Sri Lankans and not the political elites, the politicians and the bureaucrats. But it should be really what benefits the country. Thank you for that. That's that's very important to remember as donors are are trying to escalate what they're doing in, in Sri Lanka. Um, Akhil and others can answer this as well. One of the questions is many of the problems um, of Sri Lanka right now are out of its own control, high oil prices, COVID, et cetera. So is this a story about mismanagement and parochial politics, or is it a warning about fragile debt-driven growth. Um, in a corollary to that, some people have talked about uh, family dynastic politics and right-wing ethno-nationalism as a trend we see across South Asia. I mean, it's not just Sri Lanka. We see it in every country in, um, in, in the region. And so what are the warnings that you would give? What are the, the lessons that other countries need to learn? So I, I'm opening this up if anyone would like to. Akhil, maybe you can start. And if others have comments, please. Feel free to join in. I think it's a, it's a combination of both, because on the one hand, you did have the dynastic politics where you did have the capture of the Sri Lankan elite by China and other vested interests. But at the same time, yes, I mean, Russia, the Russia-Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and COVID did exacerbate a crisis. But let's not forget, Sri Lanka's debt was already on an unsustainable path even before that. Um, I mean, right now, I mean, Sri Lanka and the central bank did not... Um, help matters by trying to maintain a fixed bag and taking a very arrogant attitude. I mean, I still remember the former central bank governor, Ajit Cabral, giving an interview in January saying, we we paid off our loans, we always will do, but it was never January that was going to be the problem. It was going to be July. The entire international investment community knew that J July was going to be a problem. So I think, yes, you. I think you can blame external factors a little bit, but you can't ignore the underlying policy decisions that helped lead Sri Lanka to this place. I mean, I as I mentioned before, the protectionist policies, the inability to insert itself into the global supply chain, but then also the short-sighted decisions, such as the 2019 tax cuts and the organic and the push to trans to implement organic farming, uh, organic fertilizers. Like those were bad policies that helped push Sri Lanka to the point of default. Plus, combined with the central bank, which tried, to, which used valuable foreign exchange to pay off debts, um, instead of engaging with the IMF and instead of being able to tap international debt markets to roll over to kind of refinance the existing debt. So I think. Yes, I mean, it's it's kind of both, but I would argue it's more the bad policy decisions that have put Sri Lanka in this place. 
Yeah. Prasad, can I ask you to comment? But uh, specifically, you know, he talks about the central bank and the bad decisions not going on to the IMF early on. How much of this is uh, hollowing out of institutions, not listening to experts or bringing the military into positions in uh, civilian institutions that should be the bulwark against these things? And how do you reverse that? How do you rebuild? I mean, there's been a lot written about the criticisms of the central bank and the hollowing out of that institution. How do you reverse those in Sri Lanka? Oh, well, uh, it's only can be done through institutional strengthening because it's where uh, I, I, I will be on the side of those who assume or uh, think that this current crisis is all man-made. In a sense, it's nothing to do with ex exogenous factors. They are, but we could have easily managed had we done the right things at the right time where the experts were advising the government not to do. I mean, I, we are aware of the experts in both banks and line ministries uh, advising the government to uh, to not to do certain things, which government did through advice of pseudo-experts. So there are experts and pseudo-experts in the country. And uh, so uh, that's, that's the problem in Sri Lanka. That is due to lack of the weakness of the institutions over a period of time. Today, uh, today some institutions are being managed by pseudo experts so we have in their so-called independent commissions which were really independent under the 19th amendment under the previous government and the good governance government but currently i can't say the same thing about the i think ambika satgunadan was in the human rights commission at that time that human rights commission had the paris principle um price principle approval now the current human rights commission doesn't have that so, uh, so we need to, uh, the most important thing is the expert, experts are to advise, the politicians are to decide. But then if you have very weak institutions, you can do away with expert advice and experts lose the leverage they have, which includes sometimes bureaucrats and diplomats. They also have a, they have in-depth knowledge about situations more than uh, what perhaps uh, somebody who is just imagining things and thinking that is fact would do uh, you you i mean uh, there are that's the that's the biggest problem this current government faced in the rajapaksa government faced in in its early years because they were driven by weaves that are rather um, fantastic weaves which were believed as facts you know they were not facts and the only way to, uh, if they had listened to the experts, none of this would have happened, would have managed this crisis quite, quite well. We had the capacity to do that. And uh, one reason I want to mention here is that uh, how to get out of that. Yes, we had to bring back independent commissions, independent institutions to the extent possible, whether the current government have the capacity or the intention to do that. There is an intention to bring 19th Amendment Let's hope we, that comes back. But to my mind, 19th Amendment is not enough. It has to be much more stronger. Even on the 19th Amendment, um, some institutions are still not independent enough. For instance, secretary to ministries are appointed by the president, and president can dismiss them at any time. So, so there is no not really independent institution in that sense. Um, so you you need to we need to make certain senior appointments tenured but make them accountable, make those senior bureaucrats accountable through very vibrant public service commission mechanisms like we had uh, before 1972. 
And that could bring back the efficiency that we require for Sri Lanka to get out of this current current situation in the long term. But in short term, public <laughs> is out there. They're demanding change immediately because they have they voted for change in 2015 and that change did not happen. Yeah. Uh, on that note, I want to go to Ambika for a couple questions that I'll combine from the audience. I mean, people are very concerned about the mood and the current status of the popular movement right now after Friday's crackdown and what you see as their future. Um, do you think the current parliament, given that new elections may not happen, is the current parliament at all responsive to the demands of the people, given the rapidly change? I mean, if continued crackdowns happen, uh, like you saw on Friday, do you think the mood in parliament will change? Is there a mechanism to make them more responsive to the people's demands? Uh, well, in terms of the protests, what we have seen is that there is a core group that is still there at GGG. And of course, the uh, the other group that has been at the forefront of driving these protests, which is the Inter-University Students Federation. Uh, and they too have been very vocal about the fact that they do not find Ranil acceptable. They do not find these people acceptable. And of course, what people are calling for also is election elections as soon as practically possible. Uh, but that looks like it is not going to happen. As I said, uh, you know, even though Ranil can call elections, presidential elections at the end of four years and the parliamentary elections after two and a half years, which would be beginning of next year, it doesn't look like that is going to happen. Uh, and the crackdowns, what we saw today is that they obtained travel bans for many of the key protesters. They have, uh, I think at last count, they had obtained travel bans against six persons. There are also fears of arrest. They have said that they are investigating damage and damage to archaeological properties uh, on uh, uh, the, the sites that were occupied and that they might be making more arrests. So what, what we see here is once again, what the Rajpaksas also did, is that they're using laws. So they're not white vanning people, but they're using laws and legal processes. They're abusing them. Today, we saw that a person was remanded because apparently they engaged in hate speech on Facebook against the military. We don't know exactly what this is. Now, we have seen Nana Saratera, for instance, nonstop engaging in hate speech against Against the Muslim community. And there was absolutely no action taken against that, right? And we see that constantly, particularly, of course, against the Muslim community, even during COVID, there were state officials who blamed the Muslim community for the spread of uh, the infection. But of course, no action taken. Here, it appears it was immediate. It was prompt. So once again, we see the bias, the arbitrary decision-making. We see an abuse of laws and legal processes. The only way in which a citizen can hold the government accountable in between elections is, of course, through public protest. But what we have seen is this narrative of labeling them as fascists and saying, oh, I am all for um, uh, peaceful protests and uh, quoting the ACLU's guidelines to justify what we can clearly see was a brutal crackdown that cannot be justified legally by any means, you know. Uh, what? So it, it appears that it will become increasingly difficult also for people to use the only means that they have, which is protesting to uh, demand elections so that we do 
have a parliament that is not within the grip of the Rajapaksas and we can move towards at least initiating some of the reforms that all of us have spoken about. Thanks so much, Ambika. You guys have been wonderful. I want to try to wrap our discussion up and sort of draw some lessons out. I mean, the things that Sri Lanka is facing right now, there's economic crisis need for the IMF program reforms, restructuring debt, and obviously the humanitarian crisis. On the other hand, there continues to be, you know, minority rights, rule of law, uh, institutional reform for uh, to really ensure that human rights democracy, et cetera, and, um, and justice are uh, sustained for the people of Sri Lanka and provided for the people of Sri Lanka. Is there a moment right now when the world is actually paying attention to Sri Lanka? I mean, I want to go around and ask you all if the U.S., the EU, other partners, India, Japan, are looking to help Sri Lanka right now. Is there a moment for them to try to uh, press for reforms, to try to make some changes? What would be your advice to countries that want to help Sri Lanka, and how can they uh, possibly link these to any positive reforms? And then any other advice for the future? I'm just going to uh, go around very quickly. Prasad, we'll start with you. Uh, yes. Um that's a very good question because uh, Sri Lanka is uh, the oldest democracy in Asia, but the quality of democracy has been since independence. We cannot say that we need a lot of improvements to our quality of democracy. And fellow democracies in the world who are also very vibrant uh, economies and our key partners, US, EU, um, and then Japan, South Korea, Australia, so there are several uh, key democracies in the world, Nordic countries, that can that must be concerned. And at, at some point, they were also holding Sri Lanka as a model. I remember the days when uh, when the previous Zahapalana government or good governance government elected President Sirisena as the president, and he went to the uh, the UN General Assembly. He was seated in the main main little table with President 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 Obama, all the all the leaders. There was the great expectation that Sri Lanka will become a model democracy in the world and will address issues that are important for people on the ground in terms of accountability, rights, and 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 economic um, equity. And Sri Lanka has come to that movement. Now, that movement, we went only half-heartedly and did not materialize. But there are, the, there are certain basis, uh, or rather, rather foundation that has been laid at that time. That foundation is still fairly intact. So if our international partners can help the government to build that foundation under those conditions, that will give Sri Lankan people uh, another opportunity to rise. Now, at the same time, Sri Lanka also must realize it's a country that is in a very important uh, sea corridor, and that the habit of using the sovereignty as a shield to protect us against every violation is, is a thing of the past. There is no country in the world that can claim absolute sovereignty. Uh, every country is dependent on the, each other. There are asymmetric relations we have to realize. We have to, we have to understand the asymmetries in the world and work on that basis and be multi-aligned with countries, with, with China, with US, and but then with democracies, we have to be 
we are more close because we are part of that culture. So that's where we stand. We have still the opportunity. We are still, we don't have to still, uh, we, are, we have still enough room to rise, but conditions are have to be met. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Karyo. So Ambika, I want to give you a chance. Same question. I mean, how and where should uh, countries who are concerned uh, come in on these and use current moments leverage maybe? I think the lesson to learn from the past and particularly uh, the Raj, I mean, after Gotabi Rajapaksa was elected is that we saw many of them uh, listening to uh, Mr. Ali Sabri and funding reform uh, worth like hundreds of millions of rupees. And what they must understand is when the fundamentals are rotten and dysfunctional, when you have a racist, corrupt regime that refuses to be held accountable, refuses to, uh, you know, even acknowledge that human rights violations took place, then funding institutions or funding law reform really is not the way to go. We have seen good money being thrown and we have, this is historical, it's documented. I think it's time we learned the lesson. And of course, then in terms of aid, uh, of course, there is also uh, corruption. Um, how, how, you know, it's, it's a challenge. How do you ensure that it actually does go down to the people that it should go to? But of course, I think what they need to do is to continue putting pressure. And of course, of course, they have to engage, but that doesn't mean that they also uh, ignore other means of holding people accountable, like targeted personal sanctions, etc. Those things that are related to human rights and accountability. And of course, support, particularly for the U.S., uh, and members of the core group to support the process at the U.N. Human Rights Council. Thank you so much. Akhil, over to you, especially in terms of IMF conditionality and other ways to use economics to try to leverage some of these um, democracy concerns. Well, so I mean, with the IMF, one thing that it can do is to push, really push for um, independence of institutions. And uh, we've seen this in Pakistan with the State Bank of Pakistan independence um, guaranteeing its independence. The same thing is going to be pushed for for the Central Bank of Sri Lanka. Similarly speaking, I think you're, you're seeing more language coming out of the IMF that there needs to be strong anti-corruption measures put in place. I think that's something we haven't seen before in IMF programs. So now, you, for example, Lord Mark Malik Brown of Britain, he's also advocated for um, anti-corruption measures as a part of the IMF program. I think the, on the human rights issue, the EU has a has a role to play here in you in kind of leveraging the GSP plus review um, to push Sri Lanka to do more on the human rights situation to prevent it from spiraling further. And the U.S. as well with the IMF program, in terms of a policy, it can push the IMF and Sri Lanka to reduce military spending, show that it's serious about fiscal consolidation. And can, these, are, these are some of the policies I've thought about. But then also the Quad. I mean, the Quad it's it's delivering on vaccine diplomacy, supply, critical tech and emerging technology, supply chain resiliency. But I think there is a role to be played here for co uh, increased coordination between the four countries about, hey, what are you doing for Sri Lanka? What has Sri Lanka asked for you? How can we support each other in helping Sri Lanka navigate this crisis? Thanks so much, Akhil. Pavani, I want to give you the last word. Uh, what is the advice you give and, and how can we, I mean, this... The scenario you all have painted is fairly bleak, um, but what are the options and what is your recommendation? 
um jamana it, it is bleak but i also i i want to also try to end and and i agree with all the panelists in terms of the recommendations but maybe one thing we've forgotten is the resilience of the local actors who have really pushed back and that's something not to forget i mean we can be as critical as we want and be negative i think there's a lot of negativity but sri lankans got to this stage when many thought it was not possible citizens mobilization civil society the media the bar association i have to say i'm a proud member as a lawyer the lawyers really did step up um so i think we need to think about also supporting the local entities um you know there is a lot of work that can be done in terms of keeping the pressure from the local actors and how does anyone continue to support that space support local entities who've been doing some fabulous work but may not be getting that recognition um so continuing that local dialogue local initiatives that's important um i would say i mean as a lawyer going to court the us has done a lot of work in terms of supporting access to justice i think things like that is critical to ensure we can i mean personal i think international accountability is key that's very important to keep the pressure but we also have to look at how justice works in within sri lanka and for that we need court systems we need in, to ensure people can get to court get the cases heard so both the international dimension but also the local the structural reforms the capacity building all of that i wouldn't say it's a waste of money there is some res- things we have seen in terms of um tangible results i mean we actually get cases heard much faster than a couple of years ago i mean while there's a lot of improvement there's some things that also are making a difference so um local institutions ensuring those institutions are independent one of the things we haven't spoken about is the emergency we have a government that keeps going back to reverting back to emergency to security laws i think when internationals also engage in terms of human rights rule of law to also indicate we have laws that can be used we don't have to keep reverting to these security laws the security system this 13 years after the war why are we having these conversations while we need to meet international standards emergency should not be the the answer so things such as legal reforms um understanding how legal reforms can also lead to greater democratization human rights all of those things are important finally i will also say from the international actors in terms of what can the us do in terms of even using tools within the us i think that's something to think about in terms of justice corruption i would say with our naming names there's a lot of work that can be done associated with those who are us citizens or based in the us or has a link to the us there are cases now that is public that is one but the human rights violations serious violations were committed during the war and post war that need to be investigation investigated and there can be pressure in terms of um designations visas that can be used so pr- using that pressure finally i would say in terms of 
the September HRC session. I raised this before. This mm -hmm. is going to be a key moment for this government to hear from the international community in terms of what is required for reconciliation, human rights, and accountability. That goes hand in hand. It shouldn't be either or. It should be all of them. So it's an important moment for members of the HRC, but also others who have been key in supporting a resolution to take it through to the next stage now. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Bhavani. And on that note, I think that's a perfect note to end our discussion. I want to thank you all uh, for joining us and spending time sharing your thoughts. Uh, I think the resilience of local actors, of local Sri Lankans, is the story of the day. And we continue to watch as, as this unfolds. Um, I think we continue to pay attention to the economic and humanitarian crisis and hope that uh, that can be alleviated for a local Sri Lankans as soon as possible. But thank you all for your time, and we look forward to engaging you. And on behalf of USIP, I look forward to continuing the discussions on Sri Lanka. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.